This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Rob Tombrella is a pastor at Grace Church and the speaker on this message. My name is Rob. I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to extend a welcome to you as well. Uh, take your Bible and turn in your Bible to the book of Philippians. We're in a church. We're, we're, we are a church in a book called Philippians. It's in the New Testament. And so you can take your gadgets out or the paperback version, whichever you prefer. And we are in chapter two this morning, and we're going to be looking at the first four verses of Philippians. Now, last week, Craig preached at the, to the end of, first, of the first chapter of Philippians, and he mentioned that Scripture notes that part of the Christian life is about conflict, and it's summarized in verse 30 of chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul, who's writing this from prison, says that the Philippian church is to be engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. Now, there's a lot of charlatans out there, a lot of a bad teaching out there that would have you believe that to follow Jesus and to be a Christian means that there's an absence of conflict, that everything in your life is supposed to go great, and it's just smooth sailing, and everything is supposed to be hunky-dory in your life of following Jesus. And so people look at that from the outside, and they, they say, I don't get that. How can following Jesus, how can Christianity be conflict-free uh, when you see conflict in every major world religion out there? And that is true. If you were to study religion, conflict is uh, very much a part of every religion out there. It's part of the story. There's always conflict. There's tension. Conflict has to be overcome. Oftentimes, there's conflict between deities, one trying to win power over the other. Conflict between the deities' creatures, between God and humanity. There's this conflict between God and how to overcome the problems that man creates. And oftentimes the only way that that conflict is resolved in major world religions is through the Herculean spirituality of an individual or a person or a people group or something like that that overcomes the conflict. But the uniqueness of Christianity is that we believe God enters the conflict not only for us as a God who's kind of on our side, but he enters the conflict as one of us. So he does what is, is quite unthinkable compared to all the other religions and faiths out there is that this God, not out of hatred, not out of jealousy, not out of a desire for power or for control, enters into the conflict as a human, as, as one of us, doing what you and I can't do, loving the way that you and I have never loved, a satisfying God in a way that none of us could ever hope to do. And it's not out of blind obedience to a deity. It's not out of fear of punishment that he comes. It's the most unspeakable, mysterious motive that the world has ever encountered. See, the reason Jesus comes is that he's motivated by love. And you and I have heard the word love in, in so many places, songs, movies, theater, and ourselves. We say it all the time. We say, I love you. And, and uh, we, we wonder, do we really mean that? What does love really mean? What is love? How, how, how is it defined? 
And scripture defines it this way. Love is when God in Jesus Christ comes out of a love for us to take our place on the cross, to, to demonstrate and to show what God is like and what his love is like when he takes responsibility for our sins and then in love goes to the tomb and in love rises from the tomb and there in love pours his spirit out upon broken humanity and reverses all of our challenges through his Holy Spirit. It's this amazing love that scripture points again and again that is found in the person and the work of Jesus. And what Jesus does, both in his time on earth and when he ascends and takes up his throne in sending of his spirit, is he starts to change things. He reverses a broken society. He actually, through us, creates a new humanity, creates a new society. See, every city in the world is defined by hatred and envy and jealousy and greed. And the way God does it, the way he brings the kingdom and starts to change our society is by infiltrating it from the inside out, by sending his spirit to live in us and then to start sending us out into the cities and into the societies and into all the places of the world to reverse the death and reverse the envy and reverse the jealousy through this one-of-a-kind, unique love that is found in Jesus Christ. And this love makes this new society very different and very unique and um, and. and and crazy. People look in at this society all the time and they say, what, what's the deal? I don't understand Christianity. I don't understand what it means to, to follow Jesus. I don't know what, what it means to, to not be bound up in, in my fear and not to be bound up in the jealousy and the greed that I experience. And there is life that is found in Jesus in an identity that is found in Jesus that reworks everything, that changes everything. And Paul hints at this, at this new society in chapter one of Philippians, where he describes people like you and me in verse one as saints in Christ. Saints. That's a new society. That's a whole new people. Saints. That's, that's a redeemed people. It's not just a, a football team. It's a people. And for those who are in Christ, who've been united to Christ through faith because of his Holy Spirit, now we are different. And there are aspects about this love and, in, and this new people that puts us out of step with this culture and even in conflict with this culture. And that's what we're going to be looking at today in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. We're going to be looking at three aspects of the love of this new society. See, 1 Peter 2.9 describes Christians as a race of people. I wonder if you've ever thought about it like that. It's not just an organization. You know, it's not a building down, down the road. It's actually a whole new people group on the planet. It's a race. It's a people. And this people, known for its love, changes and starts to reverse the effects of the fall and the three aspects we're gonna be looking at specifically are the first four verses of chapter two and that's, that's these, I'm gonna give them to you and then we'll pray and get going. This love is joy pursuing, this love is non-competing and this love is others-centered. Joy pursuing, 
non-competing and others-centered. Let me read and then we'll pray. Starting in verse one of chapter two. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Lord, we're looking to your word today to do um, that freeing effect of what truth does. You promise that, that truth will set us free. And we ask, Lord, for that freedom that comes just from believing your truth. So, Lord, would you have your way in our hearts today? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, joy pursuing. How is this love joy pursuing? Well, look at verse 1. You'll notice that there's a, a word that the Apostle Paul, who's writing this from a Philippian jail, says over and over again. He says, if there is any encouragement, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. So you note the words any, and he says, if there are any. And, you know, at first glance, when you look at that word if, especially in our, you know, in the English connotation, sometimes we think of the word doubt. I mean, there's this kind of doubt to that. Like, if there's this, then potentially we can do something like that. But actually in the Greek, that, that word if can also be translated since. And you get that idea right here. It's, it's since there's so much encouragement in Christ and because there's so much comfort from love and because there's so much participation and since there's so much affection and sympathy go about doing these things. It's, it's, the idea is of confidence and of plenty, not of, of meagerness and doubt. So when you see that word if, think Think since. And so it's not if there's change under the couch, uh, maybe we get to go get a pizza. It's since there's so much stuff at Costco, you can go shopping this afternoon. So there's plenty. And that's what he's saying. There is plenty of glory in Jesus Christ to receive comfort from love and participation in the spirit and affection and sympathy. And you can complete my joy. So notice he stacks those words on top of each other. And then he adds something in verse two. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. So he inserts himself kind of in the command. So he's like, okay, so here's some things to think about. Encouragement, comfort from love, participation in the spirit, affection and sympathy. All these things are in Christ Jesus. And then he puts himself right there in the middle, right before he tells him to do something. And what he says right there is to complete my joy. And what that means is, it's not that he's not experiencing any joy. He's saying, make my joy overflow. So the idea is like you, you've got some, you know, big pitcher of water under the sink. You turn the, the water on and you watch that water go all the way up to the top. He's saying, don't, don't be satisfied with, you, you know, the water up at the top. You know, I'm experiencing that right now. Make it complete and overflowing. Make it, make, make it tip over the top and let me experience that kind of joy. So he's not a, a passive observer in this. He's an active participant in what he's asking the Philippian church to do. He's saying, take all those things, all the encouragement, all the affection, all the sympathy in Christ and make my joy 
overflow. And how does that happen? How does, how does Paul's joy overflow? And how does our joy overflow? Well, notice the next four things that he says. It, it's one idea described four different ways. And here's how he says it. Being of the same mind. You see that? Having the same love being in full accord and of one mind. So it's, it's, it's one simple idea, but he describes it kind of four different ways to think about that. Same mind, same love, full accord of, of one mind. Now, what is he saying here? Because you can just get lost in all that language. You're talking about sympathy and encouragement and affection, and then you just threw in, you know, complete my joy. And now we're talking about, you know, actually being of the same mind in a full accord. I mean, it sounds good. It sounds like something we should be doing, but how do you actually do that? Is that just something to write on a Hallmark card, or how do you actually pull that off? Specifically, let's ask the question this way. What does it mean to have the same mind or the same love with people that are different, or to be in full accord with other people And then how do you specifically do that with all those tools like encouragement and sympathy and affection and all those things that he just mentioned? How do you do all that? Does everybody follow that question? What what does that mean? Well, here's here's what I think it does not mean. I think everybody would probably agree to this. This is, it, it can't mean this. It doesn't mean that everybody agree about everything, everybody dress alike, everybody share the same bank account, Uh, That's called a cult. (laughs) So when everybody's doing that, that kind of sameness is not what this passage is talking about. Everybody would probably agree. Now, in the history of the church, many people have read passages like this and said, hey, everybody should share the same bank account, and it should go under my my numbers and my name. So bring all your your money. It'll go into my account, and uh, I'll disperse it as as you need it. And uh, you know, that makes makes it easy, doesn't it? It makes it easy just to follow a cult. I mean, it's a simple thing, you know? It's just easier for everybody just to, uh, you know, wear the same clothes and have the same bank account and, and say the same things and uh, let somebody else decide all my, all my things for me. And so it's a simplistic way of living, and some people have tried it, but it's a dangerous way and an unbiblical way of living as well. The early disciples did not live that way. Uh, they were very different. They were very diverse. They had different opinions. They didn't always agree. Uh, the apostles did not do that either. So if you, if you study the Bible and you see, man, the early apostles didn't, didn't live that way either. So uh, there was a oneness that they experienced that wasn't a sameness like that, where they were uh, cult-like or something like that. So that's clearly not one of the options. Here's another thing that it doesn't mean. Uh, in this passage anyway, it's not a command to love your enemies or other non-Christian people. So very clearly, the Apostle Paul is concerned that the early church love those around them, unbelievers, non-Christians, people that are, are seeking or people who are completely lost. Um, he, he says, I, I become all things to all people that by all, every means possible, I might save some through the preaching of the gospel. So he, he has a burden and a love for non-Christian people, uh, but this is specifically Uh, a passage or a command for the community of those who are in faith, those who are in Christ. And that's 
it's pretty obvious here. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, in other words, you're participating about, with something in Christ. And then notice the next phrase, if there's any participation in the Spirit. Since there's so much participation in the Spirit, um, do these things. So he's, he's speaking to believers. And this is really only something that can be uh, obeyed in the context of community. You can't live in isolation and do the things that Paul is talking about right here. You can't just be the satellite, Lone Ranger Christian, I'm going to you know, do my own spiritual thing and then get, get together on Sunday and just hear more and then go off and do my own spiritual thing. He says, actually, uh, you can't do that and, uh, and follow what I'm saying here. This is a participation in the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means basically this. Jesus dies and rises to put his spirit of life and love into dead hearts, into dead people. It's a different kind of religion, uh, one that maybe you've never heard of before if you're new to Christianity. The spirit of God comes to live and indwell in people like you and, and me. It's God's desire to change us from the inside out and to change our hearts and to change things on the inside, things that are messed up here, and then it starts to go out from here into other people. And that's how his kingdom is advanced through the preaching of the gospel. And all that starts by faith. Faith in Jesus connects us to God as a father. And we're no longer just isolated from God. We're no longer doing our own thing. We are actually spiritual people for the very first time. See, many people in our culture says, well, I'm, I'm spiritual. I'm just a spiritual person. I'm not a believer in Jesus. Uh, or maybe I am a believer in Jesus, but I'm a believer in Jesus and all these other gods out there. And I'm just one of them. I'm one of those gods, um, for crying out loud. I'm a very spiritual person. You can talk to people all day long and they'll talk, they'll talk ad nauseum about their spirituality. But a truly spiritual person is somebody who has a participation in the true God, in the spirit of God, and they are connected to Jesus by faith. That's a spiritual person. So he's speaking to Christians here about loving other believers. The other thing that this doesn't mean, the sameness or the oneness language, is inactivity or frozenness. Sometimes you hear the word sameness or same or I want you to be one. And unhelpfully, sometimes what can come to our minds is some kind of an Eastern religion idea where you kind of push out emotion, push out thought, push out activity, and then you'll achieve sameness or oneness or, or something like that. You'll, you'll achieve Zen, you know, something like that. It's, it's, the, it's the Jedi Council mentality. So at the Jedi Council, there's not a lot of joy at the Jedi Council. There's not a lot of excitement, exuberance, affection. It's just a bunch of people just achieving oneness and sameness, and they're trying to solve the world's problems that way. And that's not what he's talking about. Well, how do we know he's not talking about that? How come, how come it's not good and right to empty your mind? Because he's not talking about empty your mind. He says, this is affection. That's a very active word. Sympathy is a very active word. He says, make my joy overflow. There's nothing passive about that. There's nothing frozen or inactive about that. So that's not what he means. Well, what does he mean? Well, look at chapter 1, verse 7. When he's talking about be of one mind, one accord, be of the same mind. Note verse 7 of chapter 1. He says, 
It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. In other words, I'm feeling something about you and I feel something about you for you are all partakers with me of grace. Do you see those words? You are partakers with me. You you have experienced something I have experienced, and there is something very mysterious taking place between me and you, and we're separated. I'm in a prison, and you're way over here in a whole other area and land, and yet we are spiritually connected in a deep and mysterious way through the bond of the Spirit. You are a partaker of the Holy Spirit by grace. You are a partaker of grace. You're receiving actively the very affection and love of Jesus because his spirit abides and lives in you. I mean, that's very, very unique. That's very unique. That all starts when somebody by faith, by childlike faith, says yes to Jesus, to his nail-scarred hands that reaches out to every one of us. And they take hold of those nail-scarred hands and they become a partaker of grace for the very first time. They start to learn what what it means to live by grace. And then look at verse 18 and 19 of chapter one. He says it a different way here. He says in verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So he says, there's something that you are experiencing and I'm I'm experiencing and I need help from you and you need help from me and that's the spirit of Jesus. And he's confident that help is gonna come, grace is gonna come through the spirit of Jesus. So he says, what connects us is our need for Jesus and what unites us is this eternal bond through the Holy Spirit. So through the spirit of Jesus, you have an eternal family bond. So that's the idea. That's a big way of saying what the apostle's telling us here is that you have family in the room that is thicker than blood. It's it's more constant. It's eternal. You have an eternal bond with people in this room, with people in this city, and people all around the world that is actually thicker than any blood relationship that you have that's actually... Uh, stronger than any commitment that you've made to any organization and uh, anything like that. It is the eternal bond that we have in Jesus Christ. So one way to think about when he's saying, I want you to have the same mind or have oneness, is I want you as family to have a similar or a mutual experience of. So he's saying some of you guys are going to experience Sympathy from Christ. Some of you are experiencing affection from Christ. Some from Christ. Some of you are experiencing, um, you know, mercy or comfort in some way. As you are experiencing that, help others experience a mutual um, feeling of joy or comfort or sympathy. So what he's saying is, church, Philippian church, sync up, sync up. Encourage one another with the very encouragement that you're receiving for, from Christ. So the idea is here is that you're a family. And I don't know how it works in your family 
I can tell you how it works in my family. Uh, you know, it, it's rare, you know, for M- Michelle and I to both of us on any given day or week for both of us to just hit a low. You know, typically, you know, to both be discouraged by something and we're just both low. Now that does happen sometimes, but it's rare. Most of the time, one person hits a low and the other person is like that, right? And, and they're like, oh, wow, why are you so discouraged? Here, let me, let me encourage you. And then we bring each other up a little bit and we kind of balance each other out. Or the next day or the next hour, you know, it's like this, right? <laughs> it's like this. Actually, in our home, it's more like this. I'm just sullied, and she's always encouraging me, picking me up. Just kidding. It, it can go like this and that. And if you have a family, if you have a family, it can be all over the map, right? Depending on how many kids you have or uh, how many people are in your home at any given time, and it can be all over the map. And so in the same way that in, in family, nobody's always the same way, and the, the best way to, to achieve harmony in a family is to help each other uh, experience grace. That's the way we're supposed to think about the family of God. Somebody is, a, is on a low and somebody's on a high. Somebody needs sympathy and you've got it to give. Somebody needs encouragement and you've got it. Somebody needs comfort or you need to be comforted and you need to open up yourself to somebody and say, I need your comfort. I need your encouragement. Now the Apostle Paul writes about that same idea in Romans 12 pretty succinctly when he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. So what he's saying is, man, there's somebody in the family that's celebrating and you need to celebrate with them. But he says there's also somebody in the family that's weeping. And as a body, you need to weep with those who weep. So when you walk through your house in the middle of the night and uh, you stub your toe, I mean, you don't have to think about it. You don't have to think, ow, my toe really hurts. I should reach down there and grab my toe. Probably, right? Probably not. You're probably not thinking, let me think this one through a little bit. Let me think through how my hands should reach down there when my toe is throbbing because I just stubbed it. What do you do when you stub your toe? Well, you're not thinking about it. You stub your toe and all of your tension goes down to your toe and you're grabbing your toe and or what I do is I step on my toe and I just do this weird thing like, ah, and I'm just uh, in grimacing and so much pain and all my attention is going down to the toe that's hurting right there. Well, what's that, ha- what's happening there? Well, I don't know. I don't know why, uh, you know, science will tell me why I do that whenever I stub my toe. Uh, but Paul would probably say it's because you're a, you have a body, right? You have a body, and you're, because you're a body, you instinctively go to the hurt. That's what you do. You stub your toe, or you hit your arm, you instinctively go, and you protect yourself, and you go to the arm. And that's what he's saying. Church, sink up. If somebody's hurting, go. Rush there. Don't, don't wait. Don't think about it. Don't think it through. Don't think about your strategy. Just go. Just go. Love. Uh, be, why? Because you're a family. And you're not going to agree about everything, and that's the point. You're not going to agree about everything, but you can rush to each other in love for each other. Now, a word about family. So, um, family, uh, you know, let's just be real here. Family can make you crazy, right? Family can make you crazy. Why? Because there's always that one person, that one uncle that shows up at Christmas and you're like, oh no, he showed up. (laughs) 
No. Oh, great. Uh, what's he going to say? Is he going to embarrass me? Uh, everybody's got that family member that you, you, you kind of pretend that person wasn't around. And we've got some funny stories about that, uh, if we're real here. And you know, you've also probably got, or at least there's probably some people in the room that have a family member that it's not funny at all because that person's really wounded you and really hurt you in some way. And um, so, you know, that's true in the family of God as well, that there are weird uncles out there in uh, the evangelical and the Christian community as well, people that are out there claiming the name of Jesus. And, uh, and, and it, it causes a lot of tension in me because I don't want people to get the wrong idea that I don't believe what that guy believes. It's kind of like, you know, the, the, the guy's messing up at the Christmas party and you want to take one big step back and say, I'm not associated with that guy. That's, he doesn't represent me. And that, that happens in family and it happens in the family of God as well. And, and we've got to walk through those kinds of challenges and those difficulties. So family can make us crazy, but you know what else? Family can make us I'm sorry, family can make us crazy. Family can also make us courageous, courageous. Um, have you ever had a time where a family member stood side by side, you, and it gave you courage? When I was in high school, I, I have a twin brother, and uh, so obviously we're in the same grade and all that stuff in high school, and uh, my, my brother, my twin brother, went out for basketball, and I don't know why I didn't go out for basketball, because I shoot some mean hoops, um, but <laughs> I didn't, and he, he did, and he, went, he got onto the JV squad, JV team. That's not the varsity squad. He's on the JV squad, and at the time, uh, he and I were just really small and really puny. I mean, it was really small, which is uh, not today. I mean, we're, I'm a huge athletic ability today. <laughs> But at the time, he was really puny and small, and uh, he's on this JV team, and there's some, some older guys on this squad, and I, I wish I could say they were great examples. They were not. They were just these bully guys, and they would tell Joey, they told him from the beginning of the basketball season, and they, t- they reminded him of this. I don't think a day went by that this one guy in particular would remind Joey on the last game of the season— we are going to, and I can't remember what it was, some hazing thing that they were going to do, some, some horrible thing that was going to be very humiliating that he'd have to, he was thinking, I'm going to have to live with this all, you know, I got a few years of high school, you know, so they just threatened him with this every day, every day, and he'd come home, and he'd tell me again and again, uh, you know, they said it again, they're going to, they're, they're, they're warning me again, this is going to happen, there's nothing I can do to escape it, this is just going to, there's nothing I can do, you know? And he's like, what do, you, what do I do, Rob? And I, I would love to tell you, I told him some great Christian advice of what to do, but I did not. And, uh, and he's just living with this fear, just tons of fear of this last game. Well, the last game arrives and they're suiting up and they're about to go out there. And I told you he's on the JV squad. And they're about to leave the locker room and the boys are, are telling him again, uh, we're going to get you after the game. Like, it's unescapable. It's going to happen. And he and I have an older cousin. And uh, he was on varsity. And he overheard these guys saying this to my brother. And this guy uh, is a guy you just didn't mess with. Uh, <laughs> It's not because he had a reputation of getting into a lot of fights. 
it's because he had a reputation of getting in one fight. And uh, he overhears these threats and he says, you know, uh, you're not going to do that to him. And, you know, he said, this guy was like, well, oh, yeah, we are. We're going we're gonna to do it. Yeah, we're on JV. You're on varsity. Like, leave us alone, man. Just, uh, you know, we're, we're, we got this thing. This is what we're going to do. We've already told him this is going to happen. He says, well, no, you're not going to do that at all. He said, well, well, why not? He said, well, here's why. He says, you do that to him, and you watch what I do to you. <laughs> and Joey told me, the peace that came over him. <laughs> uh, was amazing. So he, he wasn't afraid of that guy at all. He knew that guy wasn't going to come near him, and he did not. It died. All the threats died. And uh, it made my brother courageous. You know, it just made him courageous. And that's what happens when we, we go side by side with our family. Uh, so that's what it means. We're not talking about physical threatening people, like don't mess with our church and don't mess with me. We're talking, please don't do that. Please don't draw those conclusions. We're not talking about that. We're talking about coming along side by side with the, the, the hurts and the wounds and saying, you know what? We're family and we're going to love each other like family. And sometimes we might fight like family for crying out loud, but we're going to love each other like family. So, so this joy is... Um, this love pursues joy like that, like a family. Here's another aspect of this love of this new community. It's non-competing. Look at verse, look at verse three of chapter two. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. So do you note, note the words significant? What the Apostle Paul is talking about here is that reversal of fortune, that reversal of motive that only the kingdom, only the Spirit of God can do in us because what he is recognizing among the Philippians and what God acknowledges here in this room, and if we're honest together, is that we are all craving and searching for significance. So that, that is to be human, <laughs> To be real here is to say, you know what? I am on a search for significance. And what the world tells us, the way you get significant is through rivalry, or maybe your translation says selfish ambition, through conceit, considering yourselves better than others, and, uh, and just by elevating yourself and elevating your, your platform and, uh, and sometimes we go after it that way and we achieve a, a measure of significance or what we think is significant and only to find out that that really doesn't satisfy. That there's gotta be something else out there, something bigger, something grander than my tiny little story and my tiny little applause that I, I received. There's this great Christian movie uh, it's called Rocky. And in Rocky, it's about a boxer, for those that are new to that idea of Rocky. So it's about a boxer who, um, as the story goes, just gets this shot at the title. I mean, he's just some guy from Philly, and he gets the shot at the title and at the champion 
fight, and it's possible that uh, he could win this thing, but he doesn't want to win, if you've ever seen the movie. He tells his girlfriend, Adrian, he says, all I want to do is go the distance. He says, nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed, and if I can go the distance, and that bell rings that I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life that I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. I don't know what that bell is for you. I don't know what the distance is for you. I don't know what that achievement is, that accolade, that success, but all of us can relate to that. That you and I are on a search to do or achieve something or beat something, something in our mind or something our parents did or something out there that proves to us that we're not just another bum from the neighborhood. We are significant. And here's, here's, what, here's what Jesus does. He comes and lives this significant life and he takes a bunch of bums from the neighborhood and he places over them a glory and a position that you and I can never achieve on this earth. And, and, and now we walk around as sons and daughters of the king with an inheritance that, that just blows our minds and we're still grabbing after other stuff that we've already got in Christ. We can't achieve something that's bigger than this. And yet we're still grabbing after it in rivalry and conceit and trying to elevate ourselves and project an image of ourselves out there on social media that's just not accurate. And even if it were, we don't need it in Christ Jesus. We've got significance in Jesus. And he's made us significant and he's given us a mission and he's given us his gifts. And he says, go and turn the world upside down and stop competing with one another. That's not the way this loving community acts. You see, the conceited are the bound up people all around us that say, I have arrived and I'm better than you. I win. So it's that idea that I've, I've achieved something and I've won. And I have something that you need, namely me, because I'm, I've won, see? Um, but the problem with the conceited is that they're bound up and they've achieved what they think is the highest place. And from that high place, there's only one place to go, right? If you've won the gold medal and you've achieved the best, there's only one place to go from there and that's down, right? The humble are the underdog. I love the underdog. I love the underdog story. I want to stay the underdog. The underdog says, oh, we're competing? I didn't realize we were competing. Okay, if we're competing, you win. You win. Now, can you help me grow? Can you help me learn? And it's that person on on the job. It's that person in the company that surprisingly moves up pretty quick. When it's not all about them and what they can achieve and then put on a resume and and then just become a free agent on to, to another place, but actually cares about the values and the goals of the company and seeks to serve others using all their gifts, pouring who they are out onto 
you know, the goals and the mission of that company that somehow they, those guys get, get elevated every single time. So it's not just about taking a seat back. It's about stepping up and serving other people because you care about people. C.S. Lewis says, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not like I'm just going to downgrade who I am. I'm just going to, you know, self-hatred. I'm just going to pretend I'm not gifted or pretend I'm no good at everything. And it's not that. It's loving people so much and being others-focused and non-competitive and that you think you think less of yourself out of your love for others. So uh, it's non-competitive, this love. Now look at verse four. This is how we're going to close. Look at verse four. This love is also other-centered. So the apostle says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So notice he's not saying you know, it, because it would, it would be less than human to say this, is to be completely, 100% only thinking about other people all the time. All the time. Without fail. Never think about anything that you've got to take care of in your own life or areas that you want to grow or dreams that you have or things that you're working on. It's not, that, that's not what he's saying at all. He says... The, the assumption is you have some interests. You have some things to look after. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The assumption is that the, there are some things that you need to take care of. There's some immediate people that you need to care for and love. Uh, but to focus only there is not Christian. See, the first part, to look after your interests, that, that's to be human. Everybody does that. But to look after the interests of others in the same way is to be a Christ follower. It's to say, I'm not the only person here with desires and gifts and abilities. There's other people around me that I can come alongside and help them. There's other people that I can serve. And that's where the joy is. Jesus says, it's better to give than to receive. That means more than just, you know, writing a check. That's talking about giving your life to other people, to the promotion of other people, to the service of other people. And that's what Jesus says in Mark 12. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Think about that. He's assuming there is a there's something of looking after your own interests, but go beyond that through the Spirit of God in being other-centered and loving other people. Ephesians 5 says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So go beyond yourself and out of love, become an other-centered kind of person. Now, I experienced this firsthand when we went into Mexico. And when we went to Mexico, uh, I let it, if you're new to the church, I let it, group, I and some other adults led a group of youth into El Paso in Mexico, and we stayed for a couple of days at an orphanage. And I think the second day it was that we're at the orphanage. Uh, it was a lot of labor out in the sun, a lot of gravel that we were shoveling, and the electricity went out. And uh, so there was no, no air condition, no running water, no way to flush the toilets. And sadly, a couple of the uh, <laughs> 
teenage guys on the trip got sick, okay? And when I say they got sick, I mean they started to throw up. And this, that's not a good, that's not good when there's no running water and uh, there's no AC and it's in a dormitory kind of area and it's three in the morning, okay? So, uh, so a couple guys got sick and uh, we all just kind of rush out of this place where everybody was sleeping out into this kind of commons area. And we're in crisis. And I, I'd like to think I'm a great leader at three in the morning, but I'm just not. And I'd like to think I'm a great leader when there's throw up, but I, there's, I'm just not. I'm not a great leader in any of those two contexts. I panic. I don't know what to do. I get really worried about myself, about smelling something, about a queasy stomach. You know, is there a virus? Does somebody eat something? So all of us are just cowered in this room, and some of the teenage guys are taking Purell and, out of love for themselves, are dousing themselves with Purell. And I've never seen that. I don't know if it works, but I don't want to get sick, so I'm dousing myself with Purell, and, and I, I don't want whatever that person's got in there. I don't want to get sick. I don't want to go in there. I don't want to go into the mess at all. And one guy, one guy on the team was, was others-centered, and that was Steve Arvagast, who I don't think he's here. Steve, are you here somewhere? He's not here in the service. He was in the first service. And um, Steve, okay? Steve, man, my respect for Steve, I already respected him a lot, but it just went through the roof as he took a bunch of cleaning material at three in the morning and walked past all the guys with Purell and <laughs> went, went to ground zero and started to clean the mess. He moved towards the mess and he cleaned the mess. And you know what I did? I, with Purell on my fingers, I'm just hollering out at him, Steve, you okay back there? Steve, you all right? That's the best I could do. I, I wasn't going in there, so the best I could do was offer a little bit of encouragement and just, hey, you doing okay back there? And he says, he says yes, I'm doing good. You know, he had a great attitude about it. And uh, man, that's what a leader does. That's what a servant leader does. You, you, don't, you don't stand, you're not back with the guys with the Purell. I'm just going <laughs> to... Protect myself. It's the, the leader says, I'm going forward into the mess, whatever that looks like. I don't know what it looks like, whatever that smells like, and I'm going to go straight into that. And out of love for others, out of the service, service to others, I'm going to go serve. I'm going to go clean up the mess and do what I can. And he did, and it was just an amazing job. We were able to go back and sleep there the next day. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's a funny story, um, but... The reality is, is that all of us, somewhere, whether that's on the job, whether that's in the home, whether it's in the neighborhood, there's a mess. And the temptation, let me just be real, is to take one big step back from that mess and say, man, somebody else take it. Somebody else handle it. Somebody else deal with that issue on the job. Somebody else deal with that that problem that I'm experiencing at home. Or we try to cover it up and just pretend it doesn't exist. And, and, and servant-hearted, other-centered love looks like saying, you know what, I'm going to move towards it. I'm going to move towards the mess. I'm going to take a step into leadership if that's what's required. I'm going to start sharing my ideas. I'm going to show up. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to do what I can for this company, even if I don't agree with everything that's taking place here on the job. I'm going to ask help for, uh, from others. If I'm experiencing a challenge in the home, I'm going to make it easy for people to help me. 
I'm not just, you know, going to sit back and just, you know, throw stones because they're not helping me. I want to make it easy for them and say, help me. Uh, um, I'm, I'm going to take a step towards my neighbors and the people that live around me, people who are far from God, people who need help, people who need encouragement, people who need Jesus. I'm not going to just step back and just get cloistered and just focus on me and my friends and what satisfies me. I'm actually going to open up my home and hospitality to the people around me in need of love and in need of of a tangible expression of life in the kingdom. And I'm going to do that in this city and in this neighborhood. And that's what it means to be an other-centered kind of person. And that's what it means to put the interests of others above our own. This is the kind of love that breaks into this society, and I want to be a part of it. I want to spend the rest of my life being a part of this new society that Jesus is building on this planet, that we're we're just living for the glory of God, and we're doing that by loving one another really, really well in such a way that it just galvanizes us outward to other people who want to and need to experience life in the kingdom. And that's why I love this church, and I love you, and the the servant-hearted people that are in this church. And I mean, I just look around, and there's people that are just serving and just throwing themselves into the mission of helping people know Jesus and to do that through this local context. And if it'd be okay with you, I'd like to close our time in, in praying for that. So if you don't mind, if you could just stand, and I'd like to close in prayer. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.